If you'll turn with me to Psalm 90 this morning. Psalm 90, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there are Bibles in the rows. would encourage you to follow along. It's always good. Um, I think it's just good to have that tactile thing in front of you that you look at as you read God's Word rather than just on the screen. If you don't have anything else or it's not near you, that's fine. But I would highly encourage you to not only use that Bible, but to bring your own. Um, it is a good practice, and even, I will encourage you, sure, you can use an electronic one, but I, I do think there is a tactile experience to using a physical Bible and having that with you. Um, in the Bibles in the Rose, it's on page 496, uh, if you need the page number, um, 496. But God's Word, Psalm 90, turn your ears to God's holy Word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you would form the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word. And we ask that you Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would touch us to the depths of our souls this morning with who you are, that we would be comforted in you, that we would know that our time rests in your hands. Father, work in me, direct my words, strengthen my voice. Lord, you are good and so faithful. And so we pray that you would do these things that we ask this morning and more for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. So do you ever feel like you run out of time? I know, that's kind of an obvious question. But I think it's important for us to consider because all of us feel this. 
If you look at, uh, books at, at a bookstore related to business, a great many of them are going to be related to what? To time management skills. How to make your day better, how to do all that kind of stuff. It's a very significant market share. I, I googled running out of time this week and found for us the seven scientific reasons you're always running out of time. This is not, a, this is not an SNL skit. This is actually an article. One, you don't wake up early. Okay? Two, you multitask, because basically we can't multitask. We can switch quickly between things, but we can't multitask. Three, you don't practice time management, so probably go by the book they were selling. Four, you aren't getting enough rest. Not sleeping well affects your performance. Five, you're too concerned with time. Okay? <laughs> Kind of interesting here, but that fixation can be a distraction. Six, you're pessimistic. And seven, you're too engrossed in your work. That one kind of seems counterproductive, but the idea is this refers to you get kind of in the zone. And have you ever been in the zone and all of a sudden it's three o'clock and you realize you haven't stood up or eaten lunch? You kind of, you, you lose track of time. But I did also in this search find three other reasons why you feel like you don't have enough time because those seven aren't enough. You're trying to do too much. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Uh, if you try and stuff too much into your life, you're always going to feel like you run out of time. You're thinking about time as the enemy. How many of us do that? We think, if only I had 26 or 27 hours in the day. The reality is, Things are going to take as long as they take, and time's not the issue or the enemy. And another one is your mind is in the future. Your body might be in the present. Well, actually, your body is in the present, but your mind is far into the future, and it's thinking down the road, and, it, and that reduces enjoyment of what you're doing now, and it also creates a great amount of stress. And I'll add one to these. I think some of our issue with time is that we can have a bit of a Superman complex or a mini-God complex, and we think that we are indispensable to whatever it is that needs to happen, so if we're not there and we don't do it, well, then it's never going to get done or it's never going to get done right. That can also cause an issue with time. Now, all of that to say, time is an issue. It's quite often a problem. It's a heartache. It's a headache. It's a worry for humanity. And part of that is because time is finite. It runs out. For me, as a pastor... Just so you know, I only have so many days before the next Sunday. In one sense, time always runs out for me. Because Sunday always comes. But the problem that we have in regards to time is not one that our God has. Because he's eternal. And this morning, that's what we're going to look at, this idea of the eternity of God and really how that eternity of God affects us how we are to live in the light of God's eternity. Again, for those who may be new or just, it's a good reminder, by the end of this series, you'll have this memorized, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question four is the, the template we're using. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. In the future weeks, I might have you recite that with me, just so you know, and maybe we'll pull it off the, the, the screen as well. So maybe you can... Work on that. That's a little homework in your time that's endless, right? So today we fall to eternal. And we're going to use Psalm 90, obviously, as our text. And in regard to God's eternity, there are some deep and philosophical debates 
I'm not getting into those today. Um, if you want to have some of that philosophical discussion, maybe you can come on Sunday night in a week, and we can talk about that in our sermon discussion times. But right now, that's not what we're going to do. That's not where my heart is in the series. My desire from this series is that we would be strengthened and fortified in our lives to live rightly, to live in a manner in which we glorify and enjoy God. Not just where we, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, kind of you know, tough it out and hope that we're glorifying God because I think the glorifying and enjoying go hand in hand. So we need to enjoy the God we worship at the same time. Now, as we come to this text in Psalm 90, it is helpful for us to realize who wrote it and where it falls in the book of, as a whole. Not, not the book of the Bible as in all 66 books, but the book of the Psalms, the, what's known as the Psalter. Okay, the superscription tells us it's a psalm of Moses. If you haven't looked at it, you know, this is an oddity. This is a rarity. This is the only psalm of Moses in the Psalter. And this psalm begins book four. There are five books in the book of Psalms, in the Psalter. And each of these, and, and collectively, they convey a message. They convey the theme of the book of the Psalter, which is, blessed are all who take refuge in the king who reigns. So blessed are all who take refuge in the king who reigns. Now quickly, books one to three, it's kind of split between books one to three and books four to five. You can kind of see a distinction there. The, the, in book one, there's, uh, it's, it's, you, you start to see the, the rise of the Davidic king. Uh, Psalm 2, the inauguration, and a ton of Psalms of David. The, 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 this kingship, this earthly kingship of the Davidic king is there, and it's, it's glorious, and it's grand. And then in book 2, it's transferred to his son, to Solomon. Psalm 72, at the end of, of book 2, is this glorious Psalm of Solomon about from the rivers to the ends of the earth, the king reigns. It's just an amazing picture. But then you have book 3, and book 3, everything seems to fall apart. And there's questions that come about that focus on what's happened. Has, has this dynasty, has this kingship been aborted? Is it gone? Where, where are the Lord's promises? And they basically ask, how in the world are we supposed to live now? Where is our king? And so books four and five move into that question of how were we to live in the absence of the messianic king? And so book four is begun by Psalm 90. Very appropriate, isn't it, that it's a Psalm of Moses? Because when did Moses live? Before King David, before King Saul, before any of the kingdom. So he had to live in the absence of that earthly messianic king. He had to live and recognize and live by faith that God is the true king, that God reigns. And very early in, the, in, in book 4 of Psalms 93 to 99, we sang Psalm 99 earlier, all but 94, are all kingship psalms. They're all, you just a blast, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns. And then book 5 focuses on calling the readers to live in faith with that, that, that king in a, in a faith that obeys. Psalm 119. What a, what, a, what a psalm about obeying the instruction, the commands, the, 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 the ways of the Lord. 
his teaching. We're to live with a sure hope in God. So that is the structure of the book of the Psalter as a whole and where Psalm 90 fits. So when we come to this text and and we see it kind of now individually a little bit, it, it is a lament. Psalm 90 is a lament. And in a sense, it is lamenting the problem of time. It's lamenting the problem of time. Moses experienced a lack of time. He ran out of time. Okay? The man who led the people out of Egypt with a strong hand, you know, as, he, as he's doing all this and crosses the Red Sea and, and everything else, what happens? He doesn't actually make it into the promised land. One commentator wrote this, said, uh, Moses becomes a paradigm for Israel's existence and for human existence. We always run out of time. Never will we fully accomplish what we would like to accomplish, nor be what we would like to be. What initially seems like a depressing message, however, is actually an encouraging one. If the great Moses came up short, then perhaps it's not such a disaster that we shall too. Moses' death was a reminder that it was God, not Moses, who would lead the people into the land. Our time, therefore, is not all there is to measure. Let me read that again. Our time, therefore, is not all there is to measure. God's time is primary. And as Psalm 90 suggests, our time must be measured finally in terms of God's time. So let's turn to Psalm 90 now. And let's learn from this this man who wrestled and who, who, in a sense, ran out of time. But in God's sovereignty, does, do any of us really run out of time? But he was also comforted and guided by an understanding of who his eternal king is. So look at verses 1 and 2 again. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting You are God. Now, immediately upon reading this, what do you see? What do do you see here? God. The foundation is God. He is our dwelling place, our, our refuge, our habitation, our home. It doesn't matter where or when we find ourselves. God is our dwelling place. But you also see a contrast in these verses. God has always been to all generations. Right? There's a contrast there, isn't there? There's one who has always been, and then there's this ever-flowing stream of generations. God has been consistent, steady, and always there for these passing generations. One, our time passes, he does not. He's before The world ever existed. He is from everlasting to everlasting. As Moses, in his final blessing, actually, before, um, in his final charge to Israel, he said in Deuteronomy 33, 27, the eternal God is your dwelling place. Here's the man who, who did not get to see the promised land. And his charge to the people is, for you, listen, the eternal God is your dwelling place. 
That's perspective. That's understanding. So let's consider God's eternal nature a bit more. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. You know, that's quoted in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1, and it's attributed to Jesus. Further witness to the truth of the triune nature of God that we looked at a number of weeks ago. But then, Isaiah 40, probably a text that that many are familiar with. Let me start with verse 28, but read through the chapter and just listen to how the eternal God affects our lives. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. What's true of him? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable, and therefore he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint." The, 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 the reality of the eternal nature of God from everlasting to everlasting, that he does not faint, he does not grow weary, he does not grow tired, he neither slumbers nor sleeps, he gives to his people strength. He gives to his people what they need. We see this eternal nature of God. But as of yet, we haven't actually addressed what is eternity. You know, the eternal nature of God is, is, is the infinity of God in relation to time. We looked at the infinity of God um, in relation to um, knowledge and, and space last week. But this is the infinity of God in relation to time. Now, Louis Burkhoff defined eternity itself in this way. He said, eternity in the strict sense of the word is ascribed to that which transcends all temporal limitations. Okay, God has existed eternally in, in both or in every direction, always in the past and always in the future. God had no beginning. There is no aging with God. There's no growth. He will never stop being. God is. He is. When we think about our existence, we don't think about it that way, do we? We think in terms of hours and days and weeks. We think of past, present, and future. We think of how I looked then to how I look now to how will I look then. But this is not true with God. How does he reveal himself? How does he say? He says, tell them I am sent you. He is the great I am. Burkhoff again said, His eternity may be defined as that perfection of God whereby He is elevated above all temporal limits and all succession of moments and possesses the whole of His existence in one indivisible present. It's all present to Him. Now, God being eternal, 
I think some of that is actually fairly clear for us. And it's understandable. But there are some things to this that are really, really, really technical. Very philosophical, very deep. Uh, They pose significant uh, philosophical and theological concerns. And again, I'm not getting into that at all today. Again, we might talk about that in a couple weeks on a Sunday night. Um, Not too much depth because it is over my philosophically weak head. Um, But what is revealed in Scripture, I think we can understand at least to enough that, that points us to worship and that can strengthen us. Okay? And if you remember, we discussed last week, God is both transcendent, He's apart from, He's different, He's outside of, but He's also imminent. Okay? He is, um, though He's separate, He chose to enter, and that's a metaphorical language, He chose to enter into our time to work in His creation, to redeem us, to save us. Now, one other passage just to look at before we get back to Psalm 90 is 1 Timothy 1.17. It says, To the King of the ages, or to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Michael Horton wrote this. He said, It is significant that God's character as eternal is clustered here with his immortality and invisibility or his spirituality. It is not simply that God's duration, life, and being are quantitatively even infinitely greater. We talked about this some last week too. But that he is qualitatively distinct from creatures to whom he has given the gift of time, space, and embodiment. In fact, eternity cannot refer to something that encompasses God. Indeed, not even the highest heavens are eternal. Only the triune God is eternal. He's before, in the beginning, God. So it's a qualitative difference. Uh, Yes, is there a quantitative difference? Yes, but it's more so a qualitative difference. So God is eternal. We need to fully affirm that. But we can also fully affirm then in regard to humanity, we're a bit different. (laughs) And that's more of what Psalm 90 explores in the coming verses. So in verses 3 to 11, we see the frailty of man. The frailty of man. Man, mankind, humankind, however you want to say it. In the first four verses of that section, so verses 3 to 6, Moses uses language and images that make this clear. Okay, simple phrases. Verse 3, return man to dust. Children of man. Both of these point to a cycle of death and birth and growth, and it's just this cycle. Return to the dust. Children. Children shows that there's, there's a change, right? That there's difference. Then you have verse 4, a thousand years, yesterday when it is past, a watch in the night. You know, something that is extremely long for humanity is compared to a few hours. Then verse 6, you have, have the words morning and evening. There's a cycle of time. The language is conveying the differences between God and humanity. 
you know, God outlasts mankind, okay? I think we can say that clearly. Man is fleeting. The language of returning to dust alludes back to Genesis 3.19. And the curse on mankind at his fall, Ecclesiastes 3.20, says this, All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. This is the common plight of man. Listen, our time runs out. It does. In fact, we are swept away as with a flood, as easy as a dream is gone when one awakes. You're startled awake, and all of a sudden that dream, you're like, darn, if I could get back into that, it was a good dream, or whatever, or maybe it was a nightmare, and you're like really glad it's gone. But it's gone like that. Death comes that quickly. Encouraging words this morning, right? Though we're renewed as grass in the morning, Our evening comes and we fade and we wither. Death is a reality. And the psalm is going to push us to see that that, that the way we face reality, the the, the reality of death and sin, which we're going to get to in just a moment, is not by looking inward and examining and navel-gazing or looking out to the world, but it's by finding our home in God, finding our refuge in the King, eternal, immortal invisible, the only wise God. So move to verses 7 to 11. We're sinners. We're sinners. We've disobeyed God's laws. We live under the curse. God's wrath and anger brings us to an end. We are consumed and terrified by it. Even our secret sins Even our secret sins, those we try and hide from others and probably even from ourselves because we rationalize them away, they're known by God. There is no hiding. Look at the picture that Moses gives in verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. That is such an (laughs) anticlimax. All our years are under your wrath and our days end like a... Gone. Our prolonged effort throughout life, all our strategies to save time, to manage it perfectly, our, our years still come to an end like a sigh. And even if we live to 80 and beyond, our years are still filled with toil and trouble. They're soon gone and so are we. Now, the psalm doesn't specify the trouble. We know a lot of the trouble Moses faced. Read the 89 psalms before this, and you'll see a whole lot of trouble. It runs the gamut. The inevitable outcome of life is this, death. You know, we think of two inevitable things in life, don't we, in America? Death and taxes. Um, And Taxes is getting as close to death as possible, it seems like. But really, death is the only inevitable thing. But Moses doesn't live in despair over this. He doesn't. He doesn't sit there and just go, well, I'm just going to die. I'm done. He focuses on the hope that we have in this life, even in the midst of toil and trouble, even in the midst of living under a curse from our sin. 
There's a question at the end of this section in verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who does? God's wrath is great. And it's a holy wrath. It is a justified wrath. And yet, so many walk around without any contemplation of God's just anger and wrath against their sin. And men and women, so long as God stays his wrath, holds it back, they are, as Calvin wrote, inflated with pride and rush upon sin with reckless impetuosity. But when they are compelled to feel how dreadful his wrath is, they forget their loftiness and are reduced to nothing. Now consider who we are in light of who God is. It's only those who rightly fear the Lord who can truly begin to understand God's anger and wrath against sin, our plight, and really how to deal with time. God knows the damage that our sin has done and will do. He knows what our poor choices in life have caused. And Moses, reflecting on his own life, knows this too. And there's only one appropriate response. Only one way to live rightly in the time that we have. And that is to turn to God and find meaning and purpose in our years in light of His time, in light of His eternity, in light of who He is. He is the one who establishes our work. So look at verses 12 to 17, and look particularly at verse 12. What a beautiful verse. So, the, the so is a therefore, or in light of all this, teach us to number our days. That, another purpose statement, that we may get a heart of wisdom. So teach us to number our days, Lord, that we, that we can have a heart of wisdom. This verse is hopeful. This feels a lot different than our years pass away like a sigh. This verse is encouraging. I love what one commentator wrote. He said this, God is not being implored to teach us to consider how oppressive our lives are. You know, find out every grievance we've ever had against us or any of that. But rather to teach us how to accept the time we've been given as a gift. Folks, you're the clay. He's the potter. <laughs> It's a gift. When this is done, when life is accepted as a gift and entrusted to God, then a wise heart is gained and physical death is no longer a problem. Human transience are, 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 are passing away becomes not an occasion for despair, but an opportunity for prayer. And I would add an opportunity to work heartily as unto the Lord in the time he's given us. It's an opportunity. This is a call that we feel daily in our frailty when you get out of bed and your knee doesn't want to work. Or you just don't want to get on a day like today, like I just want to curl under the covers and stay in that comfort and hope my kids don't wake up for a long time. Or that it's not Sunday morning where I need to get up. But when we feel our frailty daily, Look to God. 
Look to the eternal one for wisdom. We need a heart of wisdom because the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. So we need a heart of wisdom from God. We need him to give us a new heart. And in verse 13, we read the word return once again. Do you, do you remember it from earlier? You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. But here, this is not a reference to that. It's not a reference to returning to dust and death. It's a request to God to forgive. This is a request that gives us hope in our transience. And that hope is the forgiveness of the eternal God and the Lord turning to us and reviving us and restoring us. And so as we move on then through this psalm, the language that's used earlier that points to our transience, the fact that, that, that time is done, that it's fleeting, that, it, that, that, that we're frail, instead, in verses 14 through 17, point to hope and possibility because it's lived in, in the framing and under the foundation or on top of the foundation or, and, and under the, the wise guidance of our eternal God. Listen to verses 14 to 17 again. Follow along. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Here, mourning is a chance for satisfaction. It's a chance for satisfaction in the steadfast love of God. Our satisfaction, folks, does not rest in whether we perfectly managed our time the day before or what we have on our plate that day. Our satisfaction rests in the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. It doesn't rest on our good health. It doesn't rest on whether our IRA is okay. It rests in the steadfast love of God. And that love endures and works so that we may rejoice and be glad all. All. All our days. However many days we have, we are to rejoice and be glad because of God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's grace, God's love. Not just for a day or two. You know, if you're batting 80%, <laughs> okay, you're doing, you know, no, it's all our days. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. however many days we're given. That's what we're called to. And yes, there have been and there will be days of affliction. There will. We're folks experiencing that today in our church body. But we can pray that God would replace our misery with gladness. 
That's really what he does. Our trouble with good. Go back to Psalm 30, verses 10 to 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. God can redeem our time. So when we look at Psalm 90, this is a prayer. It's a prayer of lamentation, but it's a prayer to teach us wisdom. It is calling on the eternal God to help us number our days rightly and to establish the work of our hands in His will and ways. I'm pretty sure the Apostle Paul read Psalm 90. I'd venture a very strong guess at that. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The Lord's will is that we would walk in His ways and love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would glorify him, that we would take refuge in him. He is the everlasting God who actually stepped into time. As Galatians says, in the fullness of time, he came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and and enter into that fullness and, and cry out, Abba, Father. And so as sons, our call is to delight in him and rest in our Father because of Jesus, who, as Scripture tells us, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has proved Himself so faithful. We live our time in His hands. And so when we think about our lives and our time here on earth, we are not here just to endure until we return to dust. What we do is not futile. The conversation you have with the bagger at Kroger, you know, or sometimes today it's actually just with the self-checkout line, but, um, you know, or with whoever it may be, the conversation's not futile. Live it in light of God's time. The inviting your neighbor over for dinner, it's not futile. That's living life in light of God's time. Loving and serving. Listen to this. Because God is eternal and faithful, and eternally faithful in turning toward humanity, our allotted time becomes something meaningful, purposeful, joyful, even enduring. In the final analysis, Psalm 90 functions like the songs of praise as a call to decision. We are called to entrust ourselves and our allotted time to God with the assurance that grounded in God's work and God's time, our lives and labors participate in the eternal. See John 3, where where, where trust in God's forgiving love results in what? Eternal life. 
So folks, let us respond and let us rest in our eternal God. He is our steadfast love. He is faithful. He is our resting place. He is our dwelling place for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. You are good and so gracious to us. Lord, would you work in our lives and help us to see how to live with wisdom and grace and strength in the time we have allotted. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.